But in the meantime, we want to be in Matthew's study. Continue our verse-by-verse study through Matthew, if you'll turn there. To Matthew chapter 19. We'll start at verse 1. We'll cover the first 10 verses of Matthew 19. The last time that we were together, we saw Jesus give that parable of the uh, unforgiving servant. And forgiveness, we're called as Christians to forgive. We, we talked about and we see in Scripture the, you know, uh, the command for us to, be, to forgive, the imperative for the Christian to have that forgiving spirit, to forgive others, even when it's difficult. Even when we've gone through hurt, and that can be one of the hardest things that God has called us to do, is to forgive in those situations or that individual. And we discussed on that time, going through that parable, that it has to be a work of God. It's a work that he wants to do in our hearts as we come to him and say, Lord, help me to forgive day by day, bit by bit, over and over again. Because the Lord wants us to be free as we embrace his word, as we embrace his love. And he wants us to be free and forgiving others. It's not excusing what they did or even relationships don't always uh, are restored because you need to be in a place that you're safe or whatever. But forgiveness is saying that I'm not going to let that person or that situation have power over me and I want to move forward. And it's freeing, and that's what the Lord wants to do. But it's a difficult subject to look at, but a very important subject. And there's a lot of voices out there in the world and in our culture that talks about what we're to do when it comes to forgiveness. We want to know what God's Word has to say, right? And as we continue here, we're going to be talking about some more uh, subjects that culture and society has a lot of opinions on, uh, a lot of thoughts on, and we want to know what God's Word has to say, and they're not easy subjects. It's marriage and divorce and remarriage. We're going to talk next week about singleness. We're going to talk about parenting, and as we do, we want to know the heart of God. We want to know what God's command is, what His Word is, what His heart is towards those things, because again, He wants us to do well. And God's word, all of it, is inspired for our profit, for instruction in righteousness, for correction, for uh, reproof, for uh, to be equipped that we may live the life that God wants us to live. And what can happen is, is we can hear so many voices out there that will pull us away from the word of God. We're going to be talking about some issues here that are very much hot issues in culture today, but we want to be able to not only know what God's word says for us, but how we can minister to others so that others may be free in knowing the truth of God's word. You know, the grass will wither and the flower fade away, but the word of God stands forever. And it is truth, all of it, from Genesis to Revelation. And so, Lord, I pray that as we go through this section that we don't feel condemned, that we, we don't feel, Lord, um, just pulled, but we would understand what your word declares for us. And, Lord, that we would be teachable. You're the one that ordained marriage. You're the one that sustains the marriage. You're the one that gives us the desire for marriage, the desire that you have to stay married. But, Lord, we also know that there can be failure And we know that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
And as we gather here, I pray that it would be encouraging, that it would be instructing, even bringing correction when there needs to be. But Lord, you do it not to tear us down, but to build us up. Not to condemn us, but Lord, that we may be instructed in righteousness. So I pray that we would have hearts that are teachable right now, desiring to hear from you and what you say. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So as we begin to look at chapter 19, Jesus is leaving the area of Galilee for the last time. And of course, we know that the Gospels, particularly the Synoptic Gospels, speak of of much of Jesus' ministry there in the Galilee region. So he is leaving. He is headed for Jerusalem. He's already told his disciples, and he will mention it once again in this chapter, that when we get to Jerusalem, I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests and elders. I'm going to be put to death, but I'm going to rise again after three days. And they don't understand all that's going on. They're exceedingly sorrowful when they hear Jesus talk about his impending death and burial, not understanding his resurrection. And so they're confused. But as we read chapter 19, we open the chapter by reading, Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these sayings, that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. So Jesus is on just on the east side of the Jordan River in that area that the Old Testament, it was the area of the Ammonites and the Moabites. It's today called Jordan. And he's there, and we read in verse 2 that a great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. And the Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? So as Jesus is ministering to the multitudes, he's bringing healing to them. We know that the Pharisees, a sect of the religious leaders that we've been talking about going through uh, Matthew here, that they come to him and they begin to ask him a question. They have that Pharisaical mentality. Now we have seen that the religious leaders, particularly the Pharisees, have been mounting their opposition against Jesus. And what they've been doing is they come and they, they begin to take spiritual jabs at him. They, they uh, begin to criticize him. We've already seen that they came to the disciples and said, why does your teacher, your master, eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why don't you guys keep the traditions of the elders? Why do you heal on the Sabbath? That's unlawful. Why do you pick the heads of grain on the Sabbath day? That's not lawful either. And, and the opposition that they had towards them is continuing to mount. They came and they said, show us a sign from heaven. Really show us that, that you're the son of God. And so they're continuing to do that. And as they are, they're taking these spiritual jabs at Jesus. They're, they're probing him. They're hoping to trip him up and try to get uh, the people to leave, to, to confuse him, to uh, have a reason to accuse him. And that's going to continue, as we're going to see, as he gets closer to the cross. And they come to him asking, not out of sincerity, but again, very cynical and critical. And they're asking very select, controversial questions. They will continue to do so from this point on. Now, they come to him, and they ask him about divorce. They ask him a specific question, saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And in Jesus' day, there was a big controversy concerning divorce that was taking place, much like what we see today. 
Today, there's a lot of voices out there concerning divorce. And even in the church, there is. So as they come, they ask them this question. They're hoping to somehow be able to, you know, accuse him or to trip him up or to trick him or whatever it is. They, they come testing him is what Matthew records. And in Jesus' day, there was two main thoughts that they would follow concerning divorce. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 24 when you go back to the law, it said that, as we read, God would say through Moses that if a man married a woman and found some uncleanness in her, he could give her a certificate of divorce. Now, the question became, what constitutes uncleanness? And there was one camp that followed the teachings of a well-known rabbi, Shimei, that he would define uncleanness as immorality. He had a more conservative thought and definition of what uncleanness is. Then there was a more popular uh, camp that they would follow the teachings of another well-known rabbi. His name was Hillel. And he would broaden the definition of what uncleanness was. And he would define uncleanness, not just immorality. That's what Shimei said, that it constitutes some kind of immorality. That Hillel said it could be a number of things. It could be that your wife, you know, embarrassed you in public. You could determine that she's unclean and give her a certificate of divorce. Or if she yelled at you in public. If she was talking to another man uh, that she didn't know in public, then she's unclean and you can give her a certificate of divorce. There was all kinds of reasons, even to the point where the thought was that if you saw another woman, that you thought that she was more spiritual, then you could then divorce your wife and determine that she is unclean. So there was lots and lots of reasons that, and it was a popular view, unfortunately, and we'll talk about it at the end of the teaching today, that many of the Pharisees would follow the teachings and the thought of Hillel, that that just had a, a broad definition of what uncleanness is. We know that today, and it saddens me greatly, that in our culture and even more and more in the church, that the school of thought is similar to what was popular back in Jesus' day. That you can divorce your spouse for just about any reason. You're not compatible, so go ahead and get a divorce. Uh, That you're not happy, and, and God just wants you to be happy, and so go ahead and get a divorce. In our culture today, we know that divorce is so at very lightly you you know that from hollywood um from you know tv shows and all of that they they laugh at divorce you know there's jokes about it and and yet as we know that it has been for decades that the divorce rate in our country has been anywhere between 40 and 50 percent that means that nearly one in every two marriages end in divorce So it's a problem here in our country, and we want to know what God has to say about all this. So with the religious leaders coming, they're trying to distract and pull Jesus into this controversy. And rather than responding, you know, uh, to them what he he thought was, you know, Shimei or, or Hillel or what you guys think... He quotes the scriptures to them. And that's a wonderful example to you and to me because people will come to us 
And they will begin to probe us. Well, what do you think about divorce? What do you think about this issue? We read in verse 4, he, he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then, verse 6, they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus is taking them to the scriptures, pointing to what God has to say concerning marriage and divorce. Not man, not the Pharisees, not Rabbi Hillel or Shimei, but what God has to say. And of course, we've seen this example of Jesus. I think it's worth reiterating. Whenever the religious leaders wanted to dispute or try to you know, test Jesus, trap him, find a reason to accuse him, he would respond by saying, have you not read? Or it is written, and that is a good practice for you and for me. Because people will come to us, and a lot of times they're not coming in sincerity of heart. They want to start an argument. They want to know what you Christians think. And here in verses 4 through 6, there's a number of things that we see that Jesus says that are very much a controversy in our culture, in our nation even today. He starts out by saying, have you not read? And he goes clear back to Genesis chapter 2, and he quotes from Genesis chapter 2. He goes clear back to the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Unfortunately, in the church today, there are Christians, and there's even churches that they don't believe the first 11 chapters of Genesis. They don't believe it's inspired by God. They don't believe in a creation story. They don't believe that God created Adam and Eve in the beginning. And here he says, in the beginning, there was a beginning. And it's unfortunate that there are Christians and churches that believe that because Jesus puts his stamp of approval on it. And he says, in the beginning, the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 2, and then he says he made them male and female. Now, this is a verse that you might want to underline because one of the hot topics in culture today, of course, is gender identity, isn't it? And as we know what the Word of God says, we want to be able to minister to others, don't we? Again, to be able to give them God's truth, to speak the truth in love, that they might be free, that they can understand that there's an incredible creator that created them. And there's two genders, male and female, and he didn't make a mistake. And there are verses that we can give to them, to minister to them. This is what God's Word has to say. And we minister and we give truth because we love people. We speak the truth in love. But we stand on the truth of God's word. And I, I can't help but think about, you might want to write this down, that in Psalm 139, many of you know this, but, but David writes, inspired by God, this incredible um, psalm, God's perfect knowledge of man and how he formed us. And, and we read in verse 13, again, Psalm 140, for you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought from the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they were written the days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. The Lord knew you as he was creating you in your mother's womb. He knew you before the foundation of the world. He didn't make a mistake. 
He didn't make a mistake. And David goes on and he writes about how his thoughts towards you are great. The sum of them would be more in number than the sand. And the Lord loves you and created you. And he proved his love by sending his son to die for you. And it's interesting, about 300 years after David writes this, Isaiah comes along. The nation had turned away from the word of God. The nation had turned away from the commandments of God and began to follow their own commandments. They were following the wisdom of man, and Isaiah is dealing with that to God's people. And in chapter 29, he writes about this very thing that comes up in culture today. And, and as he's talking to them about following after man's wisdom, not God's wisdom anymore, uh, the Lord says, Woe to those who seek deep to hide their counsel far from the Lord. They were not following the counsel of the Lord. This is Isaiah 29, verse 15. Again, another reference for you. And their works are in the dark. They say, who sees us and who knows us? Surely you have things turned around. Shall the potter be esteemed as the clay? In other words, they didn't esteem the creator. And that certainly is true today. For shall the thing made say of him who made it, he did not make me? Or shall the thing formed say... Of him who formed it, he has no understanding. Do we hear that today? He has no understanding. He didn't make me this way. No esteem to creator. And we can take people to God's word and tell them how valuable they are to the Lord. That he desires to save them and loves them. Has real purpose for them in life. And as we see, he goes back and says he made them male and female and he gives the definition of marriage. He said, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And as he gives this definition of marriage, he says, the two, there's a leaving, there's a cleaving, there's a oneness that happens. You see, man comes along and pollutes the definition of marriage or try to redefine the definition of marriage. Marriage is God-ordained from the very beginning. It is God's holy institution, and very clearly from God's word, listen, Christian, because I know this isn't popular, and there's a lot of pastors right now that are afraid to even mention this or state this behind the pulpit because they're afraid they're going to be persecuted. But marriage is between a man and a woman. That is the biblical definition of marriage. I don't care what the Supreme Court says. So we know that God says in the beginning he made them male and female, and they come together and they become one. God ordained marriage, not man. And there is a leave-in when a man and a woman come together to exchange vows and enter into this covenant called marriage. There is a leaving. You become a family. You cleave to your wife. Um, it doesn't mean that mom and dad, that you don't love them anymore, can't be close to them, that they can't help when it is necessary and appropriate. Because many of you, you've got the support of the parents and of the family, and it's good to have that. But they're no longer calling the shots. That they're no longer making the decisions for you. But you are now a family. And then the roles and responsibilities of husbands and wife. So as we see the definition given, we know that as we stand before the Lord, 
and give those vows and promise to love each other in this covenant of marriage that you become one flesh. And that's why when there is separation or when there is divorce, there is a tearing apart of that one flesh. Culture comes along. Hollywood comes along. The sitcoms and all of that. You know, it's a big joke. It's funny and all of this. But there's a tearing apart of that one flesh, and it is very, very painful. So the definition of marriage, then second of all, the desire of marriage. Jesus says something very important. What God has joined together, let not man separate. Or let not man put asunder, as the King James says. God's desire is that we remain married till death do us part. His desire and will is that we do not get divorced. Malachi chapter 3, verse 16, we read that God hates divorce. He hates divorce. He does not hate the divorced person. God hates sin. He hates sin and he hates divorce because of what it does, the pain that it brings, the ugliness that it brings, the splitting apart of that one flesh, the splitting apart of families and the fracturing and the severing that takes place, the pain. That's why God hates it. So with Jesus coming and answering them about marriage, the definition of marriage and desire for marriage, the religious leaders, they're thinking, okay, we got him. We got him trapped. We, we can accuse him. We can back him into a corner because he's telling us what God's desire for marriage is. They think they set the trap. Verse 7, they said to him, why then? And I, I can picture these you know, arrogant Pharisees. Well, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and put her away? And he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. So you're saying, teacher, that a man and a woman, when married, become one flesh? And it is God's intention that they remain one flesh as long as they both shall live? That's what you're saying? So why then would Moses even deal with divorce? Why would there be a granting of a certificate of divorce? And Jesus answered and said, because of the hardness of your hearts. But from the beginning, it was not so. Because hearts can be hard. Because hearts can be hard, the law of divorce was given. Now, we need to know what Jesus is not implying. He's not saying that hardness of heart is a reason for divorce. And the reason that I point that out is because I've heard a few teachings over the years on this section that there will be somebody, a pastor or a Bible teacher, that will say, well, that's a reason for divorce, a hardness of heart. Your heart's just hard towards divorce. Go ahead and get a divorce. It's okay with the Lord. He's given the okay to do that. You don't want your marriage to work. You want to be happy and, and all of this. He's not given a reason for divorce or to divorce. Jesus here is given a revelation about divorce. God's heart and desire is not to divorce. But because people have a hardness of heart, the law of Moses allowed a certificate of divorce to be given. So what's a hardness of heart? We know what a hardness of heart is. Well, you're hardened to God's ways, to God's commands, to, to God's word, to his heart concerning marriage, concerning any area of your life. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to follow after the Lord. I want to do my own thing. I want to go my own way. That's a hardness of heart. And I know that there have been those passing through the services this morning that you've gone through a divorce. 
And I don't want you to feel condemned at all here this morning because these teachings are hard. And what we're going to read as we continue in verse 9. But we need to understand God's heart on divorce, the seriousness of the marriage vows that we give to each other, how binding that it is. And we need to understand that God wants to work. Some people have been in very difficult, difficult situations. They've been in situations where there's been abuse, physical, sexual abuse, and they needed to get out of that situation to be safe, at least separate. And, and it's hard. And one of the things that, that I have learned in working in ministry full-time for 30 years and talking with marriage couples is every marriage is different. And it is very, very hard. Some people find themselves in intolerable situations. And we have empathy. And we want to encourage. And we don't want people to feel condemned, but we want people to know what God's heart is on marriage and how he sees marriage and divorce. And I just want to say this, married couples that are here, because I know that there are some that are here that they're married to unbelievers. And they're the spiritual leaders of their home. But married couples that are here, listen Don't harden your heart to what God's word says, what he wants to do in your life, and what he wants to do in your marriage. You're familiar with this section of scripture that, as Paul writes, submitting to one another in the fear of God, he begins to talk about the roles and responsibilities of husbands and wives. He says it begins, and usually verse 21 of Ephesians 5 gets left out of a lot of the teachings on marriage. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. You are both, you reverence God, you're submitting to the Lord what he wants for you, how he desires for you, you know, to live and and your roles as a husband or wife. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, Paul continues to write. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he's the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her by the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies, for he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and his bones. And for this reason, Paul gives the definition again of marriage, that a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. As we read that, husbands, listen. Don't harden your hearts to loving your wife as Christ loves the church. That means you love her sacrificially. You love her as Christ loves us, willing to lay down your life for her. You serve her and you cherish her. You do what you can as you pour your life into her. Jesus poured his life into us. You pour your life into your wife. The pattern for loving our wives is the love of Jesus Christ for the church. And none of us guys will do that perfectly, not like Jesus, but he desires to help us. He desires to work through us. 
Husbands, don't harden your heart to that. Because if you do, you will be denied a healthy and godly marriage. Husbands, don't harden your heart to what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, that you live with your wife in an understanding way. It means that you listen to her. She needs your understanding and she needs your support. Husbands, don't harden your heart to being the head of the wife just as Christ is the head of the church and he's the savior of the body. What does that mean? The emphasis of leading is loving and cherishing and compassion and serving and understanding. It is not being all you know, hard and dictatorial and pushing your weight around and being demanding and everyone serves me and everyone has to listen to me. I believe that the great need in the church today, this is just my opinion, is that men will lead in a godly way. And I have talked to many of wives over the years that they long for their husbands to lead, to lead spiritually, to lead in their marriage and raising their children, to lead in a godly way and protecting their home and praying for their wives, with their wives, with their children, for men to be like Joshua that stood up and said, as for me, my house, we will serve the Lord. That the decisions that are made in your home and with your family, that your wife and family knows, guys, that you're going to be seeking the Lord for that direction. It doesn't mean you can't make decisions together. Soon I've been married over 30 years. And most of the decisions that we make, we make together. We seek the Lord. We know God's heart. We come together in one spirit and one mind. The Lord speaks to us. But there have been times when Sue has turned to me and said, you're the leader of this home. I'm going to be praying for you. Here are my thoughts. Here's what I'm thinking. Here's my heart on this. But you've got to lead us, and it's your decision. And then she prays for me. And I better be seeking the Lord. One of those decisions was moving up here to Greeley to start Calvary Chapel. She said, I want to go, but you got to make the decision. And, and so she prayed for me, and we made the decision to come up. Other decisions were whether we're going to homeschool the kids and, and other things like that. She took, looked at me and said, that you need to lead. I'm going to be praying for you. Here's my heart on it. Seek God's word. Growing together. Guys, don't think, well, I'll go to church with my wife, and that'll make her happy, and... No, it's more than that. Or, you know, I can't really lead or know how to lead. Keep growing. Come here and be encouraged. Be prayed for. Be part of the marriage fellowship so you have other couples that will build you up. Wives, don't harden your heart to what God's word declares for you to respect your husband, to submit as unto the Lord, guys, as is the qualifier. Encourage him to lead. Pray for your husband. Remembering that you're submitting to one another in the fear of God. And one of the things I would encourage you if, is that you and your spouse take a walk. If you're willing to do this, it's a beautiful, beautiful day. And if there are things that need to change in your marriage or things to be repented of, if there's adjustments to make, that you take a walk and you humble yourselves and you tell each other how much you love each other and value your marriage. 
And you come together seeking God's help and blessing and knowing that he wants to do that work. That you pray with each other, pray for each other. Paul writes, being washed with the water of the word. Isn't it interesting that today there are more books, there's more teachings, seminars, conferences, counselors by the scores on marriage. And God gives relatively a few verses on how to have a healthy, blessed marriage. His definition and intention in the marriage relationship. There's not a, a book of the Bible in the New Testament, the epistle written to married couples, 12 chapters long. But it is written, these verses, and God doesn't say here step one, step two, step three, step four. He says, yield to me, look to me, submit to me, follow me, and I will show you. Don't harden your hearts to that. That he wants your marriage to be more than you just put up with each other. But you really love each other and grow in that love as you grow in your love for the Lord. Don't harden your hearts to that. Because if you do, you're going to be denied a healthy, godly marriage and what he has for you. And I know that some of you may be in very difficult situations. And we're going to pray for you. Some of you may be in situations where you're waiting. And we're going to pray for you. And then as he continues, verse 9, this is the difficult verse. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. His disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry now, I'm not going to diminish what God's word has to say. First of all, he says that it's not mandatory that divorce occurs in the, the, the event of infidelity. He's not saying there must be divorce, but he's allowing there to be divorce. And there have been couples that I know that that happened. There was adultery, infidelity, unfaithfulness. And they came together. There was healing. There was forgiveness. There was repentance. A restoring of trust. A restoring of the marriage. A coming together and just submitting fully to the Lord and allowing him to do that work. But I also know that there are situations where it ends up being just an intolerable situation. And the marriage was dealt a death blow, if you would. No repentance. Abandonment. And he's allowing divorce in this case. I know there's been just very difficult situations where perhaps a spouse has to get away out of a difficult and very dangerous situation when there's been physical abuse or sexual abuse in the home. We know that Paul would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that he tells the, the believers, they're writing to him, do we keep our marriage vows if we're married to an unbeliever? Paul says, yes, if you're married, you keep your marriage vows. He goes on to say that if you are divorced from them, then you remain single and then be reconciled to them. And so people read that, and, and some people feel very condemned in reading verse 9 here and saying, well, I've been divorced, and there's different reasons. Maybe you got divorced when you were very young, before you were a Christian, whatever the case may be. It wasn't because of infidelity, and, and you're married again. And some people have even been told that you're living in adultery. Jesus doesn't say you're living in adultery. You are married. 
But he's showing us the seriousness of the vows, of the, the marriage covenant. God calls it a holy institution there in Malachi. And we don't take that lightly. We're seeing the, the binding of the marriage vows. And if you leave your spouse and divorce them and marry another, you committed adultery. You're not living in adultery. Because Deuteronomy chapter 24, that certificate of divorce is given if she marries another man. And God calls that man a husband, not an adulterer. And then sometimes people get confused. Well, you know, I got divorced. I, I left, and now I'm remarried. Am I supposed to divorce my spouse now and be reconciled to my first spouse that is also married? And, and there's all this confusion. God is not a God of confusion. Listen, if you're married, you keep your marriage vows. And you go to the Lord and say, we want to move forward in a way that is pleasing to you. God's not here to condemn you but to instruct you. And as we read this about this, this subject, again, what was happening is many of the religious leaders were following the teachings of Hillel. Now, Matthew chapter 19, Jesus says this to the Pharisees. When you read chapter 16, we see that Jesus is talking to them. They're deriding him. That is, they're just they're mocking Jesus. And Luke also puts a little insert in there that they were lovers of money. So here in this chapter, chapter 19, we kind of see it as a teaching. But in Luke's gospel, in chapter 16, when he said this, that if you divorce another, remarried, you commit adultery, it's, it seems like kind of out of context there. He's talking to the religious leaders. But there was a reason for it. He, he's rebuking them. He's bringing correction to them. You see, Alfred Edersham, he was an Austrian scholar. He grew up in a Jewish home. He became a believer, a Jewish believer. And he was a scholar, very, very smart guy. And in his book, Sketches of Jewish Social Life, and I got his book up in my library, he writes about the religious life at this time. And he would say that some of these Pharisees at this time, following the, the teachings of Hillel, had several wives. Some of them have many as 30 wives because they would put their wife away for any reason at all. And what Jesus was saying to them, that you're sticking up your noses at me? You're murmuring and complaining against me because I'm eating with tax collectors and sinners? You're judging me for healing on the Sabbath and you're looking down your noses at me when you are taking the seventh commandment and you're throwing it right out the window? that thou shalt not commit adultery. And every time you put away your wife because she burnt the toast, or she embarrassed you, or you lust for another, you commit adultery. Are you kidding me? And you lift yourselves up before men that you think that you're esteemed before men and all of your money and wealth and prestige and pomp and all of that? You're living in a way that's an abomination before God. And I know your heart, and he knows our heart. And may we have a heart for him and say, Lord, whatever state that you are in, and this is good, you may be here, well, I'm single. We're going to talk about singleness next week, but you need to know these things because someday you might get married. And for you who are married, God knows your heart, and he desires to work 
and trust in him and look to him. And married couples that are here, he wants to bless your marriage. He wants it to be more than you just put up with each other. But we really do love each other because we're one flesh. And allow him to do that work because it's two imperfect people coming together with a life together becoming one. But we have a perfect God. Amen? And he's the one that ordained marriage. He'll be the foundation of your marriage. He'll sustain your marriage. And it's such a blessing when two people come together as one in the Lord, serving the Lord together, looking to him, humbling yourself. And he is able, he is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that you ask or think. So, Father, I thank you that we can look at these things and, and really get the definition of marriage, your heart towards marriage and your desire for marriage and what you have to say about divorce. And, Lord, the, the binding of the marriage vows. So, Lord, I do pray that as we gather in this place here at this time, I want to pray for the marriages here. <clears throat> I know that there may be some here that maybe they're married to unbeliever. We pray that your witness and Lord, your testimony would soften their hearts, be a witness to your spouse. We pray that salvation would come to them. Even as Paul would say that the believing spouse sanctifies the home that you would wait on the Lord there you may be here and you're in a very difficult situation where there's pain where there's abuse and you're waiting on the Lord Lord I pray for a miracle I pray that you give wisdom and guidance and strength and comfort for couples that are here that you would both look up together and know that God wants to bless your marriage. If there needs to be repentance in the area, that you would do that and turn to him and not be denied a blessed marriage, a godly marriage, that you would help us husbands to, <clears throat> to lead, to serve, to cherish, to love, to live with our spouse in an understanding way, to protect our homes, to lead in a way that you've called us to, Lord, because we can't do it on our own. But you empower us as you instruct us. For wives, that you would respect your husband and pray for them. That there be a coming together as husband and wife in a oneness towards you, looking to you. And as you grow in the word and as you grow in your love for the Lord, that your love would grow for each other. I pray you bless every marriage here. And we thank you that you're the one that can bring healing, instruction, forgiveness, anything that our marriage needs. Father, I pray that we wouldn't feel condemned if we've gone through a divorce. It's not what you wanted falling short of the glory of God, what your desire is. It is sin, but Lord, we can put it under the blood of Jesus and move forward and receive your grace and mercy. 
Father, I pray as we leave here that we would be encouraged, that we wouldn't look to the world's philosophy and ways and these things that we talked about, but your word that stands forever. And I want to pray if there anybody's here that you haven't committed to Christ. You can't do these things unless you come to him first for salvation, to be forgiven, to be born again by the Spirit of God. He is your salvation. And as Jesus went to the cross, he did it to make atonement for your sins, to bring you in the right relationship with the Father, to have the hope of eternal life, to be born again, a new beginning. He is your salvation. There is none other. And he created you and knew you before the foundation of the world. And he did so that you might come to be in fellowship with him through his son, Jesus Christ, who died for you and rose again. You can come today is the day of salvation. And you can say sincerely in your heart that Jesus, I come and ask that you forgive me of my sins. You died on the cross for me. Forgive me. I believe you're alive. Be my personal Lord and Savior. Help me be the man, the woman that you've called me to be. I thank you for this new beginning, and I want to know you and walk with you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name. Father, we thank you for the hope that you give to us. You are our hope. And so, Lord, bless everyone here as we go our way. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.